Hello, Live Inspired community. It's producer Amy. And before we get started with today's episode, I want to extend a special invitation. Join us next Thursday, February 10th at 10 a.m. Central Time for a live stream interview with three-time Olympian Devin Harris. As one of the members of Jamaica's first Olympic bobsled team, Devin's story and determination captivated the hearts of many at the 1988 Winter Olympics. Tune in to hear how Devin overcame the adversity of growing up in the slums of Kingston, Jamaica, how he learned the power of persistence, and how you too can push beyond any limiting belief. We will be streaming live on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn again on Thursday, February 10th at 10 a.m. Central Time. Visit the show notes at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast for more information. Well, Akili Company's culture sets them apart and their people live out the unique culture every single day. Perhaps it's best seen through their philanthropic foundation called Keely Cares. It was built on a passion for giving of their time, their talent, and their treasure to help improve the communities in which they live and where they work. We're so excited that they were named one of the top corporate philanthropists by the St. Louis Business Journal for 2021. You can learn more about Keeley Cares by visiting them online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, you are in for a treat because I have the honor of sharing with you not only a remarkable guest, more on him in a moment, but also a cool platform that we utilize from time to time where we bring these guests to you live. So today's interview was shared across all of our social media platforms with our guest. His name is Devin Harris. That name probably sounds familiar to many of you because bobsledding. Bobsledding in the 2022 Olympics begins in earnest right now in Beijing. And for our Jamaican counterparts, it has been 24 years since I last competed in the four-man competition. Now, they've, of course, had the two-man, the two-woman bobsled going down the track over the last couple decades. They have had profound success in the Summer Olympics. But with the Winter Olympics and the four-man bobsled, it has been 24 years. Back in 1998, our guest, it was his third time in the Olympics, his name is Devin Harris, was the last Jamaican to compete in this race. Devin Harris is a name you may remember not only from that Olympics, but also from a movie called Cool Runnings. With our guest today, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about Cool Runnings. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about those three times that he journeyed to the Winter Olympics. But we're going to spend a lot of time talking about challenge, talking about our past talking about how we get to where we are right now and ultimately how we move forward to ensure that we live into our best lives, not only individually, but collectively. You're in for a wildly inspirational conversation with three-time Olympian, remarkable philanthropist, amazing human being. His name is Devin Harris. So my friends, grab your bobsleds, grab your pens, grab your journals, grab a tea or a coffee or something to sip on during this conversation. You'll love it. 
because I have the honor of bringing to you live. His name is Devin Harris. Devin, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, John, uh, so great to be on with you, man. I have to tell you right up front, I am watching for all those people who did not put bobsledding as their favorite <laughs> Olympic sport. I'm watching you. <laughs> so that's interesting. De Devin, what is your favorite Olympic sport? Mm, um, my favorite winter Olympic sport is bobsledding. And my favorite, well, Olympic sport, I guess it's still bobsledding. It's a tie between bobsledding and athletics, track and field. Yes, indeed. And I'm from Jamaica, man. What can I say? Uh, well, so normally I give this long, roaring introduction of our guests. I think today you don't need a whole lot of introduction, but I want the introduction instead to come from you. I know you have several children. If you were to meet one of your kids' friends and they say to you, Mr. Harris, what do you, what do you do? What do you do? How do you respond to that today? Yeah, let's correct that from several. Let's tamp it down a little bit to five. <laughs> I've been busy, but not that busy. <laughs> Um, you know, I would, I would, I would tell them that um, I share uh, my story with others with the hope of inspiring them to live their best lives as well. I know I, I go around and I, I sometimes call myself a motivational speaker and others call me that. But, uh, you know, I try to live my purpose, actually, mm -hmm. by um, sharing my story and helping other people to live, uh, you know, their full life, uh, their best life as we go along this journey, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the headwinds may be real, but the foundation is strong. And I, I remind people that they do have a strong foundation on which they can build, regardless of the challenges they may be facing. Mm. Well, my friend, we all deal with challenges in life, whether they be around the Olympics or marriage or singleness or financial or physical or health, emotional, all these challenges. You dealt with challenges at a very early age. And so I'm going to back the bobsled up the track just a little bit farther from the United States back down to Jamaica. Yeah. At age five, you knew early in your life that you were going to be the, the Olympics because the village where you grew up had the word Olympics in it. And although that sounds remarkable and successful and beautiful, the reality is you grew up in abject poverty. So would you take us back to your childhood and take us back to what it was like for you as a kid? Yeah, so if I could, I'd like to take you even further back. You mentioned age five. Um, I was actually living in the country with my grandmother at the time. Um, and so, you know, whenever people ask me who is the person who like, inspired you, touched you, influenced you the most, I, I name her. You know, yeah. she's, a, she's, she's the one to be blamed. Um, and so, uh, you know, the thing I remember about her was she was this amazing storyteller. And the stories that impacted me the most uh, were the ones she told me about soldiers and these amazing things they could do and not get hurt yes. you know they could jump in these deep gullies and not break their legs and it fired up my little five-year-old imagination i'm like oh my god i don't know if i can do that but i want to do it more important so that inspired me to want to be a soldier more importantly though it inspired me to want to do things that other people thought were incredibly difficult if not mm -hmm. impossible so, you know, yeah, maybe around about age five, I, I'm moving back to Kingston to live with my dad in, yeah, Olympic Gardens, man. <laughs> Sound like a fitting place for a future Olympian to have grown up. But yeah, it was uh, yeah, a rather tough, impoverished, you know, challenging neighborhood, violent. Um, you know, and I, I sometimes joke about, so as a teenager when I was in high school, 
uh, and I didn't hear gunshots at night, I knew it was time to get up and get ready for school. You know, like that's not even a joke, right? Um, but yeah, I spent um, those years in that little shack there. Yeah, you know, my parents lived in, uh, slept in one room. I was in the other room with uh, th uh, three brothers uh, sleeping on the same bed. And yes. um, but you know, the thing uh, about growing up in Olympic Gardens is that I I um, I had a really good view of this place called Forest Hills. It was maybe about five miles away as a crow flies, as it suggests, hills with yes. big, beautiful mansions. And I would just kind of dream about not necessarily living in those homes, but just dream about a better life, a better day. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing that, one of the things that really kept my focus was school. Now, mm -hmm. I often say I'm not a Rhodes Scholar, but I did crack a book or two. Um, you know, so I enjoyed, I enjoyed school. I, you know, I love playing, man. And that's where I could do most of my playing in school, if you believe it, believe it or not, right? That's where discovered sports and it kind of lit the competitive fire. I was competitive in the classroom. I was competitive on the soccer field initially. Yes. Um, and I loved, uh, the thing I loved most about sport was, you know, whatever you brought on the sport, whatever your situation was on the sports field didn't really matter. Like it's all that mattered on the field was your heart, your mm. determination, right? Yeah, you need some skill, but in the end, when you're exhausted, it's not the skill; it's your desire, your drive to to fight and to win. So, love, love, loved sports since. So, Devin, I've heard you share in the past that you would stay on the field longer than you knew you should have. You knew you would take a little bit of a beating when you got home because you were coming home so late. And also, not only did you know that was coming, that was part of your of your future, but you also played football. You played sports frequently barefoot. And here, here in the States, if a child forgets her water bottle, we're, we're very concerned about that child. You would be playing barefoot hour after hour in the Jamaican sun. Just talk about growing up playing sports with so little, but so much passion and joy for life. Yeah. So, you know, certainly when in elementary school, it wasn't so unusual uh, because we didn't have soccer cleats anyway. And by the way, I've never owned a pair of soccer cleats, um, uh, even to this day. Uh, so, you know, and I, but, and I didn't have extra shoes to play in, so I had to play barefooted. And then um, when I went to high school, I actually ended up not trying out for my school team because I didn't have cleats. Mm. Um, but I could run barefooted, and that's how I ended up uh, running track. Uh, one of the reasons why I ended up running track. But, yeah, you're right. Uh, in elementary school, because uh, the school was so close to the house, you could hear when the bell rang. <laughs> uh, it's time to go home. And as long as there's a game going on, John, I cannot leave. And I, yes, and there are many evenings I'm playing and fretting about the whipping that's that's waiting for me. But you know, football first, man. Whipping <laughs> you figure out not later. You know, you, you mentioned a moment ago that you used to stand outside the doorway by a post looking out about five miles. Yeah. This this vision of not where you were, but ultimately where you could go next. You you and your own speeches have put up this picture. You've put a little arrow toward, toward that post. Tell us what it meant to you then and what it means to us today. Yeah. So so that lamppost is yes, right outside my my gate. And and I, that was my hangout spot, you know, was the, the the house. Yeah. was tiny there was not much in there there was not much going on i was not one of those uh guys who kind of roamed the streets and hang out with you know gangs or groups of boys um my most of my time was spent at school actually that was my haven 
my safe space. So when I was home, yeah, that was kind of my hangout spot, and I would just look up there. And, and it, it, what was clear to me was that there were people who were living better than I was. And, and so if they could live that way, there, there had to be an opportunity for me to live that way as well. Mm. Um, so that's what I focus on. And I, so when I speak to people about that, I'm, like, you know, sometimes you're going through your challenges. You know, we've been collectively dealing with COVID over the last more than two years now. Um, and there are other issues in our lives, right? And sometimes you look and your, our circumstances doesn't suggest that success is even remotely possible. But, you know, what forest hills represent to me is that which we can create in our minds. Um, you know, uh, and it may seem like a world away as you can, if you imagine, you know, standing there in the middle of Olympic Gardens and looking up on forests, there's a half a world away, if not uh, further. Um, but I think all of us can lift ourselves out of our own Olympic Gardens and rise uh, and strive towards our forest hills. Well, I think it's a perfect pivot to a vision that your grandmother imparted and inspired within you this idea of <clears throat> envisioning yourself being part of the Jamaican army. So the, the next picture I'd like to put in front of you is of New College. Tell us what that is. <laughs> that is the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst in England. That's New College at Sandhurst, the most prestigious military training school in the world. And, you know, dude, it, that, you know, that was my first time ever leaving Jamaica, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I am 19, I'm 20 years old. I'm 20 years old. I'm, I'm heading out to Jamaica for the first time. You know, literally going, going from the hood to yes. that, right? Going from that shack you saw to that building, right? Uh, and if you can just imagine that there's just so many levels here, just being in a place that is so unfamiliar. My first 20 years was spent in a smack in the middle of Jamaica, never been anywhere else. And now being there and now being at Sandhurst, um, the dream was coming to light, though. That's yes. the thing. The dream was coming to light. I'd spent all that time I spent at that lamppost dreaming about uh, getting out and doing something like being at Sanders. Here I was, you know, uh, you know, in the place. Um, and then now just having to deal with all the things that you can't imagine dealing with when you're standing at, a, uh, at that lamppost, as mm -hmm. all of us have had to do in our own journeys as well. You know, So for me, it was uh, the, the issue of, I know, diversity and dealing, you know, I, I'm from a country where we're 98% black. I know I'm in a platoon of 30 guys where only three of us are black. And like this, you know, you have to search to find a black guy anywhere, you know, kind of thing. So, um, I, so yeah, it was, uh, you know, talk about dealing with change and um, dealing with the challenge of the training itself, but, and the cold, England is miserable. <laughs> So curious, how did the cold and the discipline and the training and being surrounded by white people for the very first time in your life and away from home for the very first time in your life, how did that change you? Well, I tell you off the bat, man, I, I was homesick like there's no tomorrow. I remember, you know, every now and again, I would go to London on, the, on the, the coach, we call it. And there was a sign that said Kingston 10 miles. I'm like, no, it's not. Liars. <laughs> There was a there was a town called Kingston upon Tyne, and it was you know from that point. I'm like that's not my Kingston, you know. Um, but yeah, you know the, the the thing is, what one of the things that we have to remember is that when you have uh, a goal, a vision, it, it, it focuses you. 
And um, along the way, you're going to have to deal with all kinds of challenges. Like for me, it's yeah, being in a, a place where, you know, I, I'm a minority for the first time in my life or just dealing with the, the physical and the mental challenge of uh, the training itself, the emotional challenge of being homesick, that, you know, there's nothing uh, that is from, that has been familiar to you over the last 20 years that's around you. Um, but then what's the goal, man, to become an army officer? So you suck it up, buttercup, you know, <laughs> and you, 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 you keep going. I have a, a photo of you as a young army officer. And I, I'm one of the things I read about you in preparing for today is that you treated those around you with respect. It, it came up in the comments below the articles regarding the men who served with and below you, that mm -hmm. you treated all of them with respect. Why? I think you should treat people the way you want to be treated. And I want uh, people to treat me with respect. I want people who are, you know, quote unquote, above me to treat me with respect. And, you know, I, again, I go back to, uh, you know, growing up in Olympic gardens and um, soldiers came uh, to the old neighborhood many, many times to conduct raids. I did many of those raids myself uh, yes. when I, when I served and, and I, and I, you know, I can remember one uh, particular raid as a kid or the soldiers were in my house, you know, searching, they're looking for contraband and they go into every house. And, you know, I, I you know, I'm, I'm sitting, lying there in the little bed and my, you know, under the, uh, you know, with a soldier pointing his weapon and my dad has to go and find receipts for the, the one little black and white TV and the fridge that we had in the house. Um, and so those experiences have never left me. And so when I went back, uh, I was always very respectful because I know that not everybody in, in a neighborhood like that is a crook, right? Yes. Um, but people are just trying to live. Um, and likewise, uh, in the army, I, you, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll find a soldier or two who would, would tell you that I, there were times when I was not nice, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> put it mildly. Uh, yeah, and I and I would uh, you know cop to that as well. But for the for the most part, yeah, it was about treating people with respect um, because you get you get so much more out of them. I'm going to remind our listeners, Devin, that they are listening in right now to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. That this episode is brought to us by our friends at Keeley Companies. And if they have any questions at all for my friend Devin, to type it into the chat right now whether you're tuning in through YouTube or LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or social sites, I'm not even familiar with, but you're watching us there right now. Awesome. Type in any questions you have right now for three-time Olympian, Devin Harris. Devin, as we pivot away a little bit from what you learned through the military into what ultimately will become your calling card in life in some regards, bobsledding of all things from a Caribbean Jamaican nation, I have a picture of you getting ready to begin training on the beach with three colleagues. I love this picture. I love this picture. But but first, the backstory. Before these big buff guys get ready to have this picture taken, where did this notion that a Caribbean island might be able to represent in the Winter Olympics with a bobsled team originate? Yeah. So if you have seen Cool Runnings, you'll remember Sanka was racing this cart on a winding mountain road, right? Push cart derby, which we do in Jamaica. I've never done it myself. But two Americans who lived in Jamaica saw it. Two crazy guys going down the side of a mountain in a car, you know, except for the ice to them, it was like bobsledding. And then 
they discovered that a big part of a bobsled race is a start. You need sprinters. And of course, you know, we have lots of those in Jamaica. Um, but the guys on the summer team was not interested in this harebrained idea. So they came to the army looking for athletes. Um, at the time, I was a young lieutenant. And I remember the first time, you know, I was reading this thing we call Force Orders. It's kind of like a newsletter, only more important. And um, it said something about those who are interested in undergoing dangerous and rigorous training to represent Jamaica at the upcoming Olympics in Calgary in bobsledding should make themselves known. Well, I've never heard of Calgary before, <laughs> but and I knew that bobsledding was a winter sport and yes, that it was dangerous. And I just thought, man, this, is a, this has to be the most absurd idea ever conceived by man. And I remember thinking nobody could ever get me to go on one of those things. And I asked all the questions that everybody asked, how are you gonna train? You don't have enough time and so on and so forth. So one day, um, you know, about a week later, I'm at work and the colonel was walking by my office and he called me and, he, you know, the deal, man, the, the colonel calls you, usually you're in trouble. And I walk over and he goes, um, oh, uh, tell Colonel Barnes that you and Lieutenant Wilkie will be going on for the bobsled team. Mm -hmm. And so my first reaction is relief. Oh, I'm not in trouble. Great. Oh, all I have to do is go for the bobsled team. All right. Um, but, you know, the, the, the whole equation changed for me at that moment, John, because uh, I was going to the team trials. Yes. And the, the way I'm wired, I'm not wired to just participate. And if I, if I was going to go, now it went from nobody could get me on one of those things to I don't know how I'm going to do it, but God, I have to make this team. And I, and I had no idea how I was going to do it because I consider myself army fit. I could walk. 100 miles with, you know, 50 pounds on my back and a rifle in my hand, you know. Ask anybody who's trained at Sandhurst, you walk everywhere, right? Um, but I didn't think I was sports fit. Uh, but, you know, I went I went to the team trials, man, and I I just worked hard. I tried and tried. And, you know, I, I, I often say that I think they like my smile and they selected me. <laughs> well, I like your smile. I selected you too. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was easy. You're in Jamaica. There is no ice. There is no bobsled. You've never seen one. Mm -hmm. How rigorous was the training? It was very rigorous. So, um, so, so let me let me let me clarify something. In um, in eighty seven, eighty eight, when our team came on the scene, I think there were probably fifteen or sixteen bobsled tracks in the world. Mm -hmm. So, countries like Japan, China, who just got theirs, um, France, Norway. Um, somebody else. There are a couple of countries who did not have a bobsled team, a bobsled track. Canada had just gotten theirs because they were hosting the Olympics. Um, so like everybody else, Jamaica simply have to fly to the tracks to do real bobsled training. In Jamaica, uh, in the summer, you're training, um, running, lifting weights, pushing a makeshift sled and so on and so forth. So right. that's easy to do in Jamaica. Um, but then if you are trying to compete in a winter Olympic games, uh, might I suggest you start five months before the Olympics? <laughs> <laughs> might I suggest you pick up the sport five months before the Olympics, you know, longer than five months. So, you know, our first um, time on a bobsled run was in October of 87, right? You know, with the Olympics come up, coming up in February. And it, it was indeed rigorous. And I, yeah, I was speaking about this uh, this week. 
that uh, in those early days of bobsledding, my mind went back to Sandhurst because, you know, then we went through these long periods yeah. of intense physical activity with very little rest. And that's what those, you know, first three, four weeks of bobsledding was like, you know, just constantly going. And I go, oh, I've seen this movie before. Mentally, I just went back to Sandhurst and, and it helped me. So speaking of the bobsleds, speaking of the training that you did four and a half months before the Olympics are actually going on, I have a picture, I believe, of the very first time you laid eyes on a bobsled. What, what was going through your mind as you are uh, seeing this thing for the very first time, this thing that ultimately you are going to hop in and race in the Olympics? Yes. Yeah, so this is in Lake Placid in September 87, right after yes. our team got selected. So this is the first bobsled trip ever. And that black thing between us, that's a, a, a two-man bobsled that our, our uh, coach, Howard Sadler, the white guy you see there, um, he had it in his driveway. And I remember looking at it and it, it dude, it is a really crude piece of equipment. It's tight. Yes. And I'm thinking, how the hell are we going to fit in that? <laughs> and then you see screws kind of jutting out. It's just not, it's, it's not golf, right? It's not golf. And, um, but, you know, I, I, suffer somewhat from a little bit of attention deficit. I, I like to just get um, get going, do things. And Howard was a, a pretty good talker, man. Howard was a salesman and he could talk. And I promise you that that if you look on the picture again, I'm holding this thing in my hand. It's a runner. Um, one of the things that the, the, the sled uh, slides on. And um, I think I'm, I don't know what I'm doing with it. But in that, I think in that very moment, that picture was snapped, I was bored. Yes. <laughs> ready. I'd heard enough talking. Yes. It's like, let's do this. Well, fine. Fair enough. Let's leave Lake Placid. Let's hop on a plane, head out to Calgary. Heidi and Howdy were the two mascots. I don't know if you remember that from Ooh, 1988 Olympics. Yes, yes. But man, the real celebrities were not the mascots. The real celebrities of that Olympics, and anyone who is old enough to remember it knows this to be true. It was the Jamaican bobsled team, man. You were one of those guys. Mm -hmm. For you, my friend, what was it like walking into the opening ceremonies with that Jamaican flag with a packed stadium in mm -hmm. Canada? with snow falling, representing your nation? Mm -hmm. Well, you know how you, you kind of grew up watching the Olympics and you're, you're watching the opening ceremonies and these men or women are marching in. And certainly as a kid, I remember just thinking, well, those are some of the best athletes in the world. And then here you are um, setting foot in an Olympic, uh, in the stadium of, during an Olympic opening ceremonies. 50,000 people screaming and you look off to your right and I promise you more cameras than you can count. And you know in that instant, because you've seen this movie before, that your, your image is being flashed across television screens around the world and you're going, wow, man, I hope, I hope I can live up to this belief by some kid that I'm one of the best athletes in the world. And yes, in that moment, you're living the dream. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, you know it, it, how, how you don't even know how to prepare for a, a moment like that, you know, because you're putting all the work and 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 dreamt, spent all this time dreaming, and and here you are, especially as a member of the first Jamaican bobsled team. That that you know also added an extra um, moment, meaning to the moment.
So let's move away from the opening ceremony to the main event. You, you are successful in your first two runs. You made it all the way down. Mm-hmm. And now I want to take you to the third run of the 1988 Olympics, the four-man bob, bobsled team. There you guys are at the top of the run. What goes through the mind of a bobsledder right before the green light flashes and you are getting ready to go down this hill? I like how you describe uh, the first two runs as successful. If you d- describe success as just, you know, getting from the top and crossing the finish line. I do, <laughs> I do consider that success. So, yes, indeed, my friend. <laughs> but, you know, can I can I back up a little bit uh, to say, you know, earlier I was joking about the fact that um, if you're going to start an Olympic sport, you should do it, you know, earlier than five months before the Olympics. Well, here's another uh, bit of suggestion. I, you know, here's another suggestion. Take it from me, right? If you're going to do an Olympic sport, you should have competed in the, in that event before the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> um, the 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 the, the uh, that four man race was the first time we ever raced four man. The first time we ever competed in four man bobsled racing, and you know it dawned on me over the last couple of weeks that perhaps in the history of the Olympics. That is the only time you'll ever see someone who has competed at the Olympic Games in an event, and that was the first time they did it. Right. So, yeah, you can't even make these things up. So, yeah, so we went through the first day, which, which, which had a little bit of drama, but here we are on the third uh, run, the second day of the Olympic Games, um, having really just practiced during the week and um, everything felt good. Uh, you know, there, there we are standing at the start. And, dude, it just all came together. We pushed the seventh fastest start time. And, you know, I call it poetry in motion. We just, we just got on the sled and it, felt, it was fluid. It felt flawless. Um, it was just, we were cooking. And um, I, I often make uh, reference to this uh, particular picture because if you look closely, there are two guys wearing goggles and there only should be one. Um, the one, the guy in the number two seat in goggles, that's me, here <laughs> peering over the driver's shoulder. And actually, so Dudley, the driver, he was an army captain. I'm a lieutenant or lieutenant, as Americans say. And the day before the race, so at the end of the first day, we're in the village and he calls me in this room and he furiously presses pause on the VCR and, and goes, what's that? And that's me looking over his shoulder. And he goes, take the goggles off, right? So <laughs> I took the goggles off. The captain says, take the goggles off. I took the goggles off. We pushed, pushed that seventh fastest start time. My head is buried in the sled, yes. heading down the track. And I remember we came out of corner eight and we hit the wall. And that's not good, but I'm thinking, okay, that's okay. We have enough time, there's a long straightaway before we get to nine, we should be fine. And then we hit the wall again, and I knew, okay, we're gonna wave. And if you watch the video, you'll see the sled kind of going in and out of the frame. And I and I fully anticipated that we're going to um, come around to the end of the corner, slam into the wall as we exit, and then continue our mirror way. But no, what happened is that we crashed. Yes. When I, when I look on the footage, what happened is, uh, there's a point in the corner on the curve where you should be going down. Our sled was going up instead, and there was nothing left but wall. There was nowhere for us to go but over. 
So that's what happened, you know. And I remember thinking, wow, how embarrassing. You know, people wondered if I was scared for my life. No, I was just, I was just embarrassed, man. Um, <laughs> we had crashed in front of the entire world and we had given credence to all the people who felt we didn't belong. Mm. Uh, you know, so that, that was a low point. You survive. I mean, you, you say, John, no, I wasn't worried about my life. I was worried about disappointing my countrymates by letting yeah. our letting our nation down, by proving all the naysayers they were right. That all might be true, but the reality, Devin, is this was a wildly dangerous situation to be going down a track in a 650-pound sled with three guys around you going 80 miles per hour sideways against the wall. Incredibly dangerous. So you, you could have died. What, what are you thinking as you're sliding down this hill with ice entering into the sled with you. No, that's exactly that. I mean, so that's why you wear a helmet, you know, because I, I tell you, that wasn't my worst. That was my seventh crash for the season. But I remember driving a four-man sled, if I could jump forward a little bit, um, in Winterberg, West Germany. And I I crashed, yeah, coming out of that, uh, that second-to-last corner and flipped over on my right, and I hit this part of my head. And I knew that if I wasn't wearing a helmet, I would have been dead instantly, yes. like instantaneously. I felt uh, the vibration for about a week, you know? So yeah, it's that kind of sport. Uh, but uh, as I'm heading down, seriously, I'm just thinking, oh my God, we we crashed. We crashed in front of the world. Uh, this is embarrassing. That's that's all I could think of. Um, that it, it was not a good look. <laughs> Well, the good luck ended with you somehow, I think it's miraculously popping out of that bobsled together and then walking the remainder past that finish line in the movie. We'll come to the movie mm -hmm. later on. But in the movie, you carry the bobsled very heroically with the music playing in the background. Yeah, I know. This I know. time you take off your helmets, you bow your heads a little bit. But but to me, what moves me, Devin, when I look at this picture and watch the video Everyone in that Olympic stadium is applauding, not out of pity, but celebrating athletes who have indeed done their best yeah. against overwhelming odds. You have done your very best in that moment. When you watch the video or when you look back on that walk with the bobsled being carried between you, the four of you, how do you feel about it now? Um, it's a, it's a proud moment. It's, it's one of those, it's a telling moment. I think, you know, uh, you, you look at, uh, so many things are going on there. You look on my face and it's um, one of uh, disappointment and embarrassment, not shame, but disappointment and embarrassment. But it's also one of resolution. We became so resolute in that moment. We always knew we were going to come back to the Olympic Games. But in that moment, we just knew right, that there's no way we weren't going to come back, right? So, um it's just one of those learning moments, man, that all of us have when we suffer setbacks and defeats. That you know, you 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 pick your setup literally and figuratively, and you go learn the lessons that you need yes. to learn to come back. And it, it also just goes to show, you know, we're we're not alone in the journey. Um, as much as there were people who felt that we didn't belong and so on, as I was walking down that breaking stretch trying to exit stage right. Um, people started to cheer, you know, we love you, we love you. And I remember one guy reaching over and shaking my hand, and then I had to shake every other hand uh, coming <laughs> off, right? So in, in the moment, it made you feel a little better, you know, Calgarians, yes. you, you guys were awesome. Um, 
but yeah, you can't, there's still that sting, right? And you yeah. know, and you look on the bigger picture and why you're there to represent a country that has been quite frankly nurtured and uh, Olympic excellence, right? Yes. And you go, oh my God, they're going to be mad. <laughs> These fools come and embarrass us at the Olympic Games. But you know, John, they were so supportive, man. They were making, Jamaicans that is, we're making excuses for us that we didn't even make for ourselves, you know, such as the fact that we're from Jamaica, tropical island, no snow, and here we are. Uh, we felt that we could, should succeed despite all of those things. So they made us, I'm like, okay, if you feel that way, fine, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so Devin, about 25 years ago, I was in a boat with a bunch of my buddies, this is probably college days, and they were all water skiing. And one of them kind of challenged me to try sometime. And you're on a podcast right now with a guy who was burned profoundly as a child, lost his fingers due to amputation, has no chance whatsoever to water ski or hold on to the rope. And yet I jumped into the water with both skis on and held on like this for all my life and flopped. And then I tried again and flopped. And I failed, honestly, man, about 60 times. I'm bleeding out of both arms, but eventually pulled myself up. Now I'm behind the boat on my water skis, going around the lake, having the time of my life, and then eventually fall, crash, get the skis off, get back into the boat. And I promised myself, all right, I did my thing. I tried. I succeeded. I got up. I went down the hill, if you will. And I'm never going to do that again. And I view that as like my one time I did it. Mm -hmm. You did this thing in 1988. You succeeded. You may not have climbed the metal stand. You may not have heard the Jamaican national anthem, but without a doubt, the standing ovation at the end of the line proved to you, you did this thing. So my question is, why get back into the boat and do it again in 92 and then again, and then try again in 98? Like, what was it about this, this goal for you that allowed you to risk and to train and to venture back into that bobsled year after year when it was so difficult the first time? Yeah. Unfinished business, man. We 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 felt, I believe, that we have the potential to win a gold medal, to win an Olympic medal. Um, but obviously, it doesn't happen just because you wish it and you dream it. You have to work towards it. Um, and as I said earlier, that crash made us even more resolute that, you know, we're not going to go like this. We're going to come back and we're going to try. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I was speaking earlier this week on another podcast and I was saying after 92, I really tried to push Bob said away. I was just, let's get back to the real world was, was what I was thinking. And I could not get this thing out of my blood because I had unfinished business. I had to, I didn't feel like I trained in the way I needed to train in order to get to the Olympic games. And so I came back uh, again in, in 98 and kind of like you, you know, you, the thing is that you would, you, if you hadn't gotten into the water, John, and tried and, you know, flopped and got, you know, bruised and blooded, um, you'd be wondering to this day if you could have possibly done it. But you did. And now you're going, okay, I did it. Fine. I'm out of my own. So after 98, uh, yeah, I still didn't win the medal, but I felt like, you know, I have given everything. And I wanted to go back again in 2002, but I could walk away. I could have, I was able then to walk away in peace, yes. knowing that I, I gave it my shot. You, you can't, the, the, dealing with the, the, I talk about it all the time, the pain of change, which is incredibly painful. 
um, it's temporary. You get through it and you're done and you go, yep, I did it. Mm. But I can't imagine, man, living with a pain of regret because that doesn't end. The, p- the pain of change and the pain of regret to kind of push a wedge between the two requires also the pain of risk. And we had mm-hmm. an awesome question coming in from our Facebook community. So I'm going to put it up on the screen and I'll read the question to you. It comes in from my friend Meredith. So Meredith Sainer Bogus asked the question, fear of embarrassment or fear of failure keeps so many of us, Devin, from taking risk, personal, professional, et cetera. What advice would you give to anyone sitting on the edge of an opportunity, but they are afraid to move forward mm-hmm. because it might end badly for them? Yeah, it could end badly, but how do you know? <laughs> you can't know, right? Um, I was thinking about this this morning. I don't know why, but my mind went back to those days in Austria. And, oh, my God, how my stomach would be in turmoil. Like There's like million, millions of butterflies in my stomach as I drive up that winding mountain road to the track every day to go down the track, right? Um, yes. But I did it, right? And can it end really badly like I lose my life? Absolutely. Can it just end in a way that I'm embarrassed? And I've been embarrassed many times. Um, and it's a, and it's true, it's the same feeling and challenges that we feel when we have to go, uh, when we're sitting, as I said, Meredith, at the edge of a new opportunity, whatever that is. Like when I was thinking about leaving the army or um, doing what I do now, I don't, you know, punch a clock. You got to work. You got to hustle. Mm. Um, but you can't know. That's the thing. That's my thing. You cannot know unless you try. And I think it's better to try and fail. And you go, you know what? I gave this everything I had and I've had those moments. Yes. And it's time to move on to something else. I think you can live in peace. I can live with myself that way as opposed to not trying. You spoke beautifully there about hustling. And when I think of your story, one thing I've read about you and I've heard you share it in one interview is that if you could go back in time and relive a 24 month period, which would you choose? And there are so many highlights from your life that I would have assumed would be your answer. And the answer you gave was actually 1996 through 1998, a period in time when you are hustling big time. You're working at Macy's, you're delivering pizza. I think you're living in Wyoming at the time. Yeah. You're training for the next Olympics. You're doing three full-time jobs, full-time while growing a family. Why in the world would you choose that 24 month period to relive? You know, it's because it, whoa, it's, it's, it, I grew so much from that. It really strengthened me, you know, um, it's kind of like when you go to the gym and you're lifting weights after a period of time, after 24 months, man, you're going to get stronger if you're doing this consistently. And I think as you're going through some of the toughest challenges in your life, if you choose not to buckle, mm. and I'm not saying that you will not get frustrated. And uh, because there were many a times when I was uh, frustrated, there were times when I didn't even realize I was frustrated until somebody pointed out that, no, you sound so frustrated, you know? Yes. But man, you know, when I walk, when I march in that opening ceremony uh, in Nagano after going through such a hard time, there was such a, I haven't seen it, I remember it, but my friends told me that, man, that they saw me on TV with the biggest grin on my face. And I remember saying to the other guys, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, you, 
you you just get so much stronger, man. You know, like you look back, you're, I did that. Mm. I did that. That means I can do anything else, really. Devin, when you speak, there, there's this joy that exudes in the way you share your story. Happiness is winning the gold. I won the gold or we won the gold. Good for us. And then eventually that gold medal will rust away. It will fade. Yeah. Joy is unfading. It is enduring. It is contagious. It is beautiful. It is rare as well. It is rare. You have it, my friend. Talk, <laughs> talk about that joy. I mean, I hear it in the response to every question I'm asking you today. Mm. Talk, talk, just talk about joy. Uh, well, I was, I was, I was uh, singing joy, joy, joy to you, but then I, we just ruined the entire show. So let's not do that, <laughs> dude. I, I love life, man. I love living, and um, uh, I've learned to embrace all its facets. Right. So, yeah, there are some crappy parts that we don't enjoy when we are going through them, but then when you come through, you're like, yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I did, I. Um, uh, you know, I I joke. I'm, first time I'm telling this this story like like international, you know. But I I joke about when I was in basic training in the army in Jamaica, man, and uh, we were on the range, and the and the training officer was whoa, he was working us that day. It was a punishment. It's called dubbing. <laughs> and <laughs> I was running with this twenty four pound gun over my head, and I got exhausted. I just didn't have any energy. And I pulled it down, right, to rest. And he goes, put that over your head or, you know, some expletives, go home. <laughs> and um, when I imagined, like, going back to that shack, I don't know where I got the energy from. Like, yeah! <laughs> like, <laughs> so in that moment, I thought I was going to die, but I can look back at it. It's a Jamaican thing as well, you know. We just laugh at some of the worst experiences we have. Um, that's That's what makes us so cool, I think. Um, but yeah, I just joke about that all the time. I laugh a bit about it often. Um, yeah, you have to take the good with the bad. That's life. Yes. And, and it, there's, there's no point in walking around and moping because that's not serving you or anybody else. Brother, it's a huge lesson we must learn as adults from your story, from, uh, you lowering the gun and then lifting it high again, and then laughing about it afterwards. We adults must learn that yeah. we have a question coming in from our community asking about kids and how we can teach our young people to learn this. So our friends are now tuning in from YouTube and LinkedIn mm -hmm. and Instagram and Facebook and everywhere else. And this one comes in from my friend, Mary T Schmitz. She wants to know this always persisting and and persevering. How do you teach that or help grow it in our young people? So Devin, how do yeah. we take these messages you've learned the hard way and yeah. instill that in our young people? Um, through example and through challenging them. So I tell you, uh, this is years ago. My, 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 my daughter, she was, I don't know, maybe seven years old. We're in the driveway and she's shooting hoops and she's not hitting any baskets and she gets frustrated and she starts to cry, right? I'm out there yes. too. So you think as a loving, kind dad, I'd put my arms around her and hug her and like, it's okay, honey. No, instead I, I, I say to her, if at first you don't succeed, what must you do? And while she's wiping away the tears, I go, try and try and try again. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> Am I mean? I don't know. But, you know, so she started trying and she kept trying until she started hitting hoops, you know? Yes. There's, I, I wish there was a, a kind of gentler way to, to do that, but sometimes 
life is hard. Life can be hard. And you have to, um, I think, prepare your kids um, just to deal with some of the harsh realities of life. Like it's just like no way to sugarcoat um, dealing with tough times. You have to get tough, you know. So I, I would say the way I do it is through the power of my example. And it's, it's some of the proud moments when I, my kids who are, you know, I've still two in, in school and three are out of the house and they talk about the fact that I challenged them. That's, that makes me feel like I did something right. And you've done a lot right. And it has been celebrated not only in this show and through books you've written and speeches you've given, but in a movie that probably every one of our listeners has followed. There it is, man. I'm sure it's not the first time you've seen the the DVD cover, the VHS cover, Cool Runnings, created by Walt Disney. How did that movie change your life? Do we have to talk about that again? We won't spend much time here, but I you do have to talk a little Dude, bit. Dude, I, I was on a on a on a Navy ship, the USS Kearsarge, in the middle of the 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 Gulf, the um the Sea of Aden, right? Okay. And this uh, sailor comes up with uh, the VHS copy, asked me to sign it. I'm like, how did, you, how did you know we were coming? And then I thought there's no way that he could have known because they had been, they actually, while we were there, broke a record for being at sea the longest in the history of the Navy, right? And he goes, no, I take this everywhere I go. I'm like, wow, cool. That's, that's pretty cool. Uh, really cool movie, flattering, you know, we're, we're talking earlier about me standing at that lamppost dreaming about, you know, yes. doing some other things in life. You can't dream that stuff up. How do you dream that up, right? You know, that, that's the stuff that Hollywood movies are made of. Um, but we, 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 we thoroughly enjoyed the movie, thought it was a, I thought it was a good human interest story, um, powerful life lessons, you know, obviously not true to form, very loosely based yes. on true story, but um I think they did a good job in depicting the spirit of the t the team as underdogs fighting to overcome. And I get why they they couldn't have told the story true to form because, like I mentioned earlier, the first time we raced a bobsled, a four-man bobsled, was at the Olympic Games. Now, people wouldn't believe that. That would be un unbelievable, right? The the Chris Tokes was on our team. He was in the Olympic race the during the at the end of the first week of seeing a bobsled, you know, and then we push the seven fastest start time. So, yeah, there are certain things that you know they say fact is stranger than fiction. Yeah, it can be at times. So you have factually the ability not only to be represented in that movie, but also to represent it more honestly through your own voice as a speaker. You, my friend, are a leadership guru. You travel the world. When when you're in front of audiences, whether big or small. What are the primary messages you want them to hear clearly from your life about their life? That, uh, you know, they can do it too. We all have within us the ability to push past uh, real or perceived limitations. And so I challenge my audiences, you know, my mantra is to keep on pushing, um, which obviously has a bobsled analogy, but it's really speaking to this this dynamic ever-changing process that 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 uh, uh, that we go through to transform ourselves mm. and quite frankly as we're doing that we're transforming the people and the organizations around us so you're 
um, it's, it's about growth, man. You can't sit there doing the same old, same old every year. You have to, you have to strive to grow in a deliberate way because things are going to change. Your world is going to change. You are going to change. Now, the question is, are you changing in a way that is going to afford you the opportunity to explore your full potential? Or you're just changing and going up, going with the wind, right? Keep on pushing is um, about this focused, deliberate effort to continue to grow. Oh, that's so good. Are you changing in a way that ultimately will allow you to embrace and open up your full potential? That is a question we need to look in the mirror each and every day and be asking ourselves, are we today changing in a way that is allowing us to live into our full potential? When I look at you, my friend, as I see your beautiful, brilliant smile staring back at me right now, and as I look at you in bobsled pictures or uniform pictures, or as a child, you've got a big smile on your face, big old smile. But the biggest smile I see on your face is not when you're in front of audiences, but when you're with your own family. So I'm, I'm going to pop yeah. this one up right now, because this yeah. is when joy is really on your face. What, what is it about your family that you are giving me that big old grin for right now? Dude, you know, so I'm I'm called many things. I have been called many things, you know, some quite flattering, others not so savory. But the thing I love being called the most is daddy. You mm. know, I just absolutely love I love being a dad. I love hanging out with my kids. They think I'm weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the you know, I'm I'm when I'm home, I'm just having fun. That's you know, doing silly things I'd never do on camera, do in public, you know, singing loudly. <laughs> I can't sing. Um, but yeah, I just really just enjoy. Uh, I, I, it's such a huge responsibility. So I embrace that responsibility of, uh, you know, given charge of these five lives and, yes. and doing my best to, to guide them. Well, regarding those five lives and your bride's life and your life, there's a quote. Uh, I'm going to kind of wrap in a moment with seven mm -hmm. questions for you. But before we get to my questions, there are three quotes that I wrote down that I've heard you share in the past or read from one of your books that move me deeply. So we're going to go through these one by one by right. one, starting with number one. And it is your biography is not your destiny. So your biography is not your destiny. Tell me what you mean when you say that. Yeah. So, you know, as 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 you you say that, I, I kind of go back again to Olympic Gardens and uh, some of the young my peers, boys I was growing up with. So again, you, when you're in an environment that, that, like that and it seems so dead end and um, you, can, you can take that on, I would say. Yeah. But again, because I had this view of Forest Hills, it, just, it, it automatically said to me that there was better. There were other people who were enjoying more. And so therefore, if they could do it, I could do it as well. And so Olympic Gardens, that, that part of my biography doesn't mean that that's where I, I, I was going to end up. Now, remember, I'm 13 years old because the other boys were calling themselves sufferers, right? That's the environment in which we live. And at 13 years old, I go, hey, we're not friends anymore. And I just kind of, you know, divorced myself from them. I removed myself from that company and that thinking because I could not afford that biography to be my destiny. Mm. Then we're going to have you back on at some point soon, because I, I would like to spend a full hour talking with you about that, that mindset mm. of how do we mm. shift from being a victim to our circumstances, whether 
the life we are born into, the struggles that have shown up in our life in the midst of the journey. But how do we really shift from that mindset into your mindset? The mindset you had as a five-year-old, thank you, grandma. The mindset you had as a 13-year-old, the mindset you have today as a man. It's a beautiful mindset. It is a choice. And you speak to it with my second quote that I wrote down. It's about the whining. So here comes quote number two, Devin Harris. The whining, the complaining, the justifying. Until you stop that, you remain powerless to improve your situation. Hmm. I talk too much, don't I? <laughs> no, man, you talk too little. Um, dude, I mean, so if you think about how I, I hate the feeling of feeling powerless. I hate the, I absolutely hate the feeling of thinking, feeling like I, I can't impact my situation. I can't do anything. And when you're sitting there using all of your energy, blaming and complaining and whining, what's changing? Nothing. If, if anything is changing, is you feeling worse, is you feeling powerless. And so uh, am I saying I never complain or whine? I think in, in we all do like at the outset, but then you kind of have to snap out of it and go, okay, how can I fix this? Yes. What can I do? And you won't necessarily have all the answers. You really will have all the answers um, and, and know exactly where you need to go. But what empowers you, I believe, is you now using your energies um, to figure out what steps you need to take to make things better. And once you start taking that first step, uh, you start finding ways. It's not never necessarily easy, um, still challenging, but you start feeling better and you, you become empowered and you eventually solve the situation that you find yourself in. That's an important way to, to begin moving toward the finish line. We have a lead coach here named Matt Miller. He is uh, in charge of our coaching organization, and he's got an, an expression, focus on your most important, stay within your circle of influence, and then take your next right step because the next right step leads to the next right step. Exactly. So I'm, I'm going to put up the third quote, but I, I feel like I've been doing all the work today, Dev. And so I'm going to invite you to read this third quote because I think it's going to sound a lot better in your voice than it would in mine. So quote number three now in front of you in Jamaica. Oh, so I should put my glasses on. In Jamaica, we have a saying, we're little but we're talawa. It means we're small, but we're powerful. Uh yeah, it means we are small, but we are powerful. And this attitude allows us as Jamaicans to consistently punch above our weight class. We simply believe that we can do anything. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, we look about with Talawa. Like, <laughs> I mean, that, that is so succinct. I don't even know how else to explain it. Yeah, so uh, uh, our country, obviously, is a small country. Three million people now. It also means we're growing. And so when you let, let's use something that most people are familiar with when it comes to Jamaica, track and field, right? We were talking about that earlier. And I, I think at this point, we have won more medals in the sprint than any other country in the world, right? To include the US. Um, and I think that there demonstrate this little but with Talawa mentality that no matter what it is that we as a people attempt, track and field, bobsledding. We expect we expect uh, to, to make a splash. And I think um, 
all of us can embrace that we little about with Talawa uh, mentality that you know regardless of where you're starting out in life and what your what some of the obvious challenges and roadblocks may be recognize that inside of you though is that is that giant mm. that can that can you know rise above all of it well my giant friend uh you do rise above it and you remind the rest of us that so can we as soon as we stop making excuses as soon as we start controlling what we can letting go of what we can't and taking the next right step forward we have a consistent journey here together as part of the live inspired podcast community to wrap up with our guest with seven questions they are brought to you by our friends at keely so these are the live inspired seven questions now for devin harris Mm. Question number one, Devin, I hope you're ready for these. These, these are the quick fire questions coming All to right. you. Keely, what is the most impactful or inspirational book you've ever read? Ooh, that's a, the, when I'm, um, the art of selfishness. <laughs> because I bought it because it said the art of selflessness. And I was reading, I was like, there's nothing selfless about these stories. <laughs> selfishness oh that comes to mind because i think it's a cool title there are others but um what, the, the bottom line is that y- you have to take care of yourself before you can help others right so you have to grow you have to become more valuable yourself be- before you can add value to the lives of others mm. Devin, as you add value to others by investing in yourself, what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy by that lamppost in Olympic Gardens that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, I don't know what I think. I suppose I was supposed to persistent, but dude, I'm 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 dogged. You know, I'm I'm just that. <laughs> I'm just that, that is a great word. I was persistent and dogged. I still am, but maybe even as a child, I was even more so persistent and dogged. I think that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. If your home caught fire and your family's out and the animals might be out, but you had an opportunity to run in and grab one item that really mattered to you, what's the one thing you would come racing back outside with? Wow, what a question. Um, (laughs) My birth certificate? (laughs) Um, Probably, probably, ooh, you know, Oh, there's a there's a collage on, on the wall. I was just looking at it yesterday and smiling to myself with my kids. We we're on vacation and doing different things. That's what I would that's what I would grab. Other stuff you can easily replace, right? The the collage of family, those yeah. I love most, doing the yeah. things we love to doing most together. Mm-hmm. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous Jamaican day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or deceased. Mm. Who would you want to be seated next to? Can I choose two? Um, the first one would be a Jamaican, um, Sam Sharp. He's one of our national heroes. He's my favorite. He's a dude that says, I'd rather die on yonder gallows than live in slavery. And mm. that to me is an ultimate in defiance. And I'm as def- I'm, I'm, I can be a pretty defiant dude. Um, and the second one would be, um, geez, Mandiba. Um, because, you know, Nelson Mandela, to spend, what, 28 years in prison and came out and come out and go, all is forgiven. That's not me. I'm not that dude. And so he's such a 
a greater man than I than mm -hmm. I am even to this point. That that is that's definitely a lesson, uh, 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 some lessons that I need to learn from from him. Well, if you get those two guys on a bench in Jamaica, will you let me know so I can just sit down <laughs> near you and record a life lesson taught by two masters? Yeah, so I, I appreciate yeah. that. What's the best advice that either one of them or anyone else has ever given you in your life? Oh, I would say it probably is is not them per se. Say, but when I was in the army uh, and I was heading off to England, this captain at the time he said, it, "And only way, only a way that an army officer would do it. They're giving you really good advice, but not with any warmth, but very, very rigid and military." Have a good sense of humor. You hear me? Have a good sense of humor. Oh my God, that served me so well. Um, you know, as a as a kid from from the hood at Sandhurst and having to put up with some some of the stuff that just wasn't so cool. Mm. Yeah, just being able to laugh it off was 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 useful. And Devin, if you could go back in time and whisper some wisdom into your ear at age twenty, what what advice would you give yourself? Slow down. Mm. Um, I would, now I would, yeah, enjoy the process. And so I, so I look back and I go, yeah, you know, I really should have smelled the roses a bit. Um, and, and I have a challenge with giving myself that advice because I don't know. I kind of felt like I did what I needed to do in the moment. Yes. But as I'm looking back now, it's like, man, it would have been good if I was able to like, just pause and smell the rose just, just for a minute. But that would be it. Mm. Devin Harris, it has been said that all great hum human beings, philanthropists, authors, fathers, husbands, bobsledders, overcomers can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Uh, he was a good father and husband and friend. Wow. So this man who came out of abject poverty, who represented Jamaica in the very first Winter Olympics, desires to be remembered as a phenomenal husband, father, and friend. What an example for all of us who are lucky enough today to tune in. Some of us live on social media, the rest of us tuned into the Live Inspired podcast afterwards. Devin Harris, I want to thank you for being a remarkable father, husband, and friend, a phenomenal speaker, author, and human being. And an example for all of us on what overcoming looks like in the face of profound odds. John, it's been awesome, man. Thank you for having me. It's great uh, spending time with you and your audience. And thank you so much for this program and putting out the amazing work that you're doing. And I want to encourage everyone to continue to tune in uh, to this man here because he's doing some amazing work. Well, Devin Harris, your words, not mine. I appreciate that. You'll get the... Uh, the agreed upon compensation afterwards for dropping that line in there. My friends for tuning in today. I want to thank you for being part of this celebration. If you don't currently tune in, why not start? You can tune in by subscribing to the podcast or following us online. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. That was Devin Harris. And today is your day. Live inspired. I would walk outside of my house, stand by that light post, look out from my current situation five miles into the distance and see the people who live differently than I. And it was the way they lived that I desired to live myself one day. 
That was one of my main takeaways from this conversation with an incredible, normally I would use the word Olympian, but this is just a remarkable human being. He wanted to be remembered as a father, husband, and friend. He is all those things. He does them well. And I think one of the reasons he's able to is because he's able to stand where he is, understand from where he came, but also glance to what is possible, not only in his life, but in ours. My friends, that idea of standing at that post and looking forward into possibility is important for all of us, whether we live today in Jamaica, we live today somewhere in the United States, or you're tuning in from anywhere around the world. 75 nations tune in. The way we step forward to our futures together is this, persistence and taking responsibility for our actions, our next right step going forward. It's a great reminder from Devin Harris and the first time on this podcast from an Olympian that I was challenged with that reminder was also one of my very favorite podcasts I've ever recorded. I'm frequently asked, John, what's your favorite podcast? And that's a little bit like naming one of your favorite kids. You just don't do it, do you? You just don't name the favorite child. But one of my favorite podcasts was episode number 68. So who was that with? His name is Scott Hamilton. Scott Hamilton is a cancer survivor. Scott Hamilton is an overcomer. Scott Hamilton is an incredible human being. Scott Hamilton has a story of being adopted as a young boy, finding what it looks like to find a new family, to fall in love with that family, to fall in love ultimately with a sport called figure skating, and fall in love again so much so with life that every time you speak or you write, or you announce that others fall in love, not only with that sport that you love, but also with their life. The conversation with Scott Hamilton is available today at episode number 68 on the Live Inspired channel. I just encourage you, if this conversation today with Devin moved you, and I'm sure it did, it certainly moved me, do me a favor, roll on over to episode 68 right now with my friend Scott Hamilton. You will love it. My friends, I want to thank you for tuning in today to our Live Inspired channel. I want to thank you for believing like I do, like Devin does, like Scott does, that the foundation is firm. The headwinds may be real. Yes, indeed. But the best days are in front of us. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary and today is your day. Live Inspired. Keeley Companies recognizes that their people are indeed their greatest asset. With a focus on career growth and well-being and safety, Keeley Companies are proud to be a career destination. If you or anyone you know is looking to join a culture unlike any other, let me encourage you right now to apply today and experience the Keeley way. If you want to truly make a difference and be part of an organization that recognizes that difference by investing in you, Learn more by checking them out online at keelycompanies.com.